Well, as you'll know if you've been following with our study, um, we are in Romans chapter 6, and we've taken the last couple of weeks off of Romans 6. Last week we had a, a wonderful study in the book of Ephesians with Pastor Stan, and the week before was Christmas, and so it's been a, a few weeks at least since we've been here. And what we've been finding as we work our way through Romans 6 is Paul has taken a brief pause on his doctrine of justification, which is really the central theme of this whole epistle to the Romans, and he's now dealing with a question that he has anticipated from really a, an opponent, somebody who is an unbeliever, um, particularly a, a Jewish legalist, who is asking this question, shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound, um, given the fact that we have abundant grace, superabounding grace to all who are believers in Jesus Christ, um, a grace that is greater than all our sin, far greater than all our sin, as we just sang a few minutes ago. And, and so this question can arise, um, but this is a question that a Christian would never ask. It shows a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. And what Paul is, has been in, purposing to do in this section is to say not only are you justified by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, meaning all your sins are forgiven and you've been given a standing with God, the positive righteousness of Christ. His very obedience is credited to your account. There's your salvation. But that's not all of your salvation. That's a big part of it, but it goes on. After we are justified, we are sanctified. So Paul is now teaching us this in response to this question, this heinous question of shall we continue in grace, excuse me, in, in uh, sin that grace may abound. He's teaching us the doctrine of being united with Christ and the doctrine of sanctification, our holiness, that we are not left to ourselves as believers to figure life out, but the Lord Himself is helping us to live a life of holiness, a transformed life where we are changed from within to become more and more like Christ and less like our old selves. And so, in this doctrine of being united to Christ, of being planted together with Him, of being baptized into Him, a, a sovereign and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God where we are joined, grafted to Christ, and so that His experiences become our experiences is what we've been learning. And what we've seen is that when Christ died, when He was crucified, we were crucified with Him at the cross from God's perspective. We died. The old man, the old sin nature that we had that was reigning in our lives is now crucified with Christ and dead, and we are buried with Him, but it doesn't stop there. We are raised with Him to newness of life, to walk in a newness of life. In other words, the new pattern of our lives is no longer love of, enjoyment of, pursuit of, living in sin. That's no longer the pattern like it was before Christ, before belief in Christ. Now the pattern is one of loving righteousness. It is one of walking in a newness of life which is described as a righteousness. Um, so we are being sanctified by the Lord, by His very life in us. And that means that the absolute power that sin held over us in our lives before Christ has been broken. That's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says, for, we, excuse me, for he who has died 
has been freed from sin. We died in Christ, and because of that, we have been freed from sin. In what sense? Well, not from the presence of sin. That still abides in our lives and will until we are glorified. But freed from the power of sin in our lives. We've already been freed from its penalty. That was our justification. Now we are freed from its power. It no longer dominates us. That's really his big point in chapter 6. And so he says, you ought to reckon these things to be so. In verse 11, because Christ died to sin, we died to sin in Him. Because Christ has nothing to do with the domain of sin and death any longer. He's been raised victoriously as a conqueror over sin and death, never to die again, and now lives to God. So it is with you and me, brother and sister. We are to reckon ourselves as dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And then He gives us, He enjoins us with these two commands. And in fact, as I think we pointed out last time, this is the first time in the epistle of Romans that we actually have an imperative, a command. Everything to this point until Romans chapter 6 verse 12 has been instructive, has been indicative. This is what is true of you. In verse 12, we have our first of two commands. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Don't answer the door when sin comes knocking with a strong desire. That's what lust is, strong desire. It will knock, and it will knock repeatedly. You don't don't need to answer the door anymore. And instead, verse 13, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That was the old pattern. Your members, the parts of your body, all of you, your mind, your spirit, your your soul, your, your emotion, your will was all given to sin. Now we are to give ourselves to God. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, the parts of you, all of you, as literally weapons of righteousness to God for His use, for His glory. And then we get verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So this is really, you can see, a summary statement of the first 14 verses or 13 verses in chapter 6. And it starts with a four, a clause that connects us to what we were just learning in verses 12 and 13. Now, let me tell you what verse 14 does not mean, because some have interpreted it this way. They would say, You shall not allow sin to dominate you any longer. That's not what he's saying there. It's not a command in verse 14. He's not saying, if you do verses 12 and 13, if you don't let sin reign in your body, if you don't present your your, uh, members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, if you don't do those things, then sin will no longer reign in your body. That's not what he's saying. He's using the future active indicative tense. That just is a fancy way of saying a statement of fact. Verse 14 is a statement of fact for all Christians. He's saying, you shall not have Excuse me, sin shall not have dominion over you. That's from God's perspective. It's a decree. It's a statement of truth for each one of us. 12 and 13 are commands. 14 is a summary statement of fact. 
And in fact, verse 14 is the reason we can do the commands in verses 12 and 13. That is the power of grace at work in all of us. So he says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin as in that old sin nature that we dealt with. Sin as in that tyrant that we saw in verse 21 of chapter 5. As sin reigned in death like a, like a tyrant. Or, as we saw last time in verse 12, sin personified like a general in the military, commanding us to obey him. Sin as a tyrant and sin as general sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, shall not master you, shall not be lord over you, shall not reign over you. We know that sin used to dominate us. That's clear from this whole section. In just verse 6 of chapter 6 in particular, we used to be slaves of sin. Slaves given to sin. Whatever sin wanted, it got from us. It commanded and we obeyed willingly. We didn't put up a fight. We wanted to. We loved our sin. But Paul here says, sin shall not dominate you any longer. And here's the reason he gives. It's a simple reason, but it's a profound reason. For you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. Now, uh, before we can answer the question of the relationship between sin not dominating us and, being, and not being under law, what's that connection? Why is that a, a therefore? Why is that a, an answer to the question? We have to first understand what it means to be under law. And Paul really is going to take chapter 7, all of chapter 7, and the first four verses of chapter 8 as a detailed explanation of this verse, verse 14 in chapter 6, to explain what it means that we're not under law, but under grace. And so we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves by unpacking all of that until we get there, but there is plenty that the Lord, I believe, wants us to know and that we can understand just based on where we are in the text right now in 6.14. So, here's what I'd like to submit this morning. There are um, several things that it means to not be under law, or to be under law. Let's take this first. What it means to be under law is our first heading. Here's the first thing. It means to be guilty before God. Guilty before God. Look with me at chapter 3 of Romans, and verse 19. Romans 3, 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, notice that phrase, under the law, um, some versions like the NAS or LSB will say in the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under or literally in Greek, it's in the law. So, first of all, who's under the law? The whole world. The whole world is under or in this law that Paul is talking about in Romans 3. This law affects the whole world that every mouth might be stopped. In other words, no one will be able to say anything to justify themselves before God. And what law is he speaking of here when he refers to law? Well, the first time he mentions law in Romans is in chapter 2, in verse 12 um, through 15. So, Listen to this, 
verse 12 of Romans 2, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Who's that referring to? That's the Gentiles, those who've never heard of the law of Moses. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Who's that? That's the Jews who have the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Or perhaps another way of saying that that brings clarity is, will evidence that they are justified, the doers of the law. For when Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So here we have a description of the law, which is applied to two different groups of people. Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had the Mosaic law, but they did, did not keep it. They were hearers of the law, but they were not doers of the law. The Gentiles, Paul says, even though they don't have the law of Moses, they've become a law to themselves. Why? Because they have the work of the law. The work of the law. What is that? It is the knowledge of God, that He is God, to know what He approves of and what He disapproves of, what is right and what is wrong. No one has to teach that to any of us. Anywhere in the world, when we're born in this world, we all have this knowledge. And the conscience of man, the little light that God puts in us to know that right and wrong and to know that He is, it's an alarm system that goes off when we sin, when we do what's wrong. It tells us that we're wrong. It accuses us, that the conscience. You are out of the line, out of line with God's will. And when you do what is right, you're at peace. The alarm system is not sounding. So everyone has this law that applies to them, is what he's saying. This is a, a moral law, you could say, that really is transcendent. It binds the creature, us, to the creator, to obey the master. So, law is really a universal term. It's the law of God. It's the moral law that governs every man, whether it's, now notice, whether it's written on tablets of stone as it was for the Jews with the Ten Commandments, or whether it's the work of the law written in the heart of somebody who is in the farthest corner of the earth and he's never heard of Moses. This overarching governing law, God pronounces every person guilty by it. It's a legal sentence of guilt. It, it stops every mouth from trying to justify itself. Romans 3.23 says, For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we saw when we studied that text is it's the past tense. All sinned at one point in time. And when was that? Well, it was in Adam. And we saw that expounded in chapter 5. When Adam sinned, his one offense, his one transgression brought sin and death upon all humanity in him. Even though we weren't in existence yet, we were in the loins of Adam. And so we were all tainted by his sin. And because of that, we inherit Adam's sin nature. We start in this world at a deficit as sinners by nature, and as bad trees, if you will. And so all we can do is make bad fruit. That's why we sin. 
So from head to toe, you look at Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, and he gives a description of there is none righteous, no, not one. We are sinners from our heads to, the, to our toes. In the things that we think, in our attitudes, in our speech, in our feet, our, our way of life, all of us is corrupted by sin. And so to be under law is to be guilty before God. It's to be pronounced guilty before God. Now, secondly, to be, under, to be under law means to be captured by the law, trapped by the law. Look at um, Galatians chapter 3 with me. Over to Galatians 3. Verses 21 to 23. Galatians 3, 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin. When uh, Paul uses that word confined, it's the word that means enclosed. Shut up on every side like a shoal of fish would be after they're caught. Trapped. And he says it's the Scripture that does that. The Scripture is the law of God. It has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it has a wonderful, gracious purpose in trapping those who are to come to Christ, to release us to Christ that we might believe in Him. But first, it confines us. It traps us. It closes us in on every side. And he says, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. That's a military term. Under watch by a a, a regiment of soldiers. Not allowed to leave its bounds until afterward when he reveals Christ to us. So I think this is what Paul has in mind when he says, under law, in Romans 6.14. It means to be enclosed, to be trapped, as is used in Galatians 3. It means to be in the law, like we saw in Romans 3.19. In other words, it's something that surrounds us on all sides. So picture being inside of an enclosure, a net. You are under the net. You're in the net. It's all around you. That's the idea. It's something that hangs over our heads and closes us in on every side because it shows us to be guilty before God who is holy, who is pure and good and right in all that He does. There's an example in Pilgrim's Progress where um, Bunyan, the author, depicts the law in this, I think, really astute and accurate way. He describes the law as a steep, high hill that overhangs the wayside when Christian comes to uh, the town of morality to talk to Mr. Legality. And Christian, the text says, he stops fearing that the overhang might fall on his head. This represents the law, something that looms over him as if to crush him at any moment. That's what the law is. For sinners, something that condemns, something that traps them and renders them guilty before God. But thirdly, it means this, to be under law means to be under the covenant of works, or what's called the old covenant, the old covenant. Now, this old covenant started in the Garden of Eden. Man, in fact, when he was created by God, 
was under what's called the covenant of works. This was the first and original covenant that God made between himself and mankind. And the covenant went something like this. Perfect obedience is required for blessing and life. But even one transgression would bring cursing and death. And we know the story that Adam and Eve fell. They sinned when they disobeyed God. God said, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, you may not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate, and they did die. Not physically right away, but spiritually they died. And because they died, and now tying this with our understanding in Romans 5 about um, Adam's one sin and how that spreads to all mankind, to all of us, we know that every person in Adam, every posterity, all the posterity of Adam, are born cursed and under this covenant of works, subject to its same conditions, do and live, disobey and die. So the same thing is required of us as was required of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what it means to be under the old covenant, the covenant of works. And the text in Romans um, 5 says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness, the exact transgression that Adam committed. Death still reigned. Why? Because every son of Adam inherited the sinful nature of Adam. When God established the Mosaic Covenant later at Sinai, it really was a, an amplification of the covenant of works. It was a restating and really a, a building out of this is what it means to serve God. This is what is required by God in its fullness. It's expanded, and there's a lot there. Some uh, theologians, you know, there's sometimes some confusion about the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, how things are categorized. Some would put the Mosaic covenant under the covenant of grace because it has a gracious purpose. Uh, like we just read in Galatians 3, that for some it traps them in order to deliver them to Christ that they might be freed. But really, the terms of the covenant are the same. If you read Exodus 19, when God brings Moses and Israel to the mount, to Mount Sinai, and he says, this is what you will speak to the people, all the words of the covenant. Look what he, look, listen to what the Lord says about the terms of the covenant in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So notice, it's a conditional statement. If you obey, what? My voice. All that I've commanded, then you will be to me a special treasure above all people of the earth. And what happens? The people agree with Moses and with the Lord, and they agree to be bound by that covenant and blood is sprinkled to ratify that covenant, sprinkled on the people, sprinkled on the book of the law, and they say, we will do all that the Lord has commanded. But alas, we know the rest of the story. Did they keep the covenant? No, they broke it. In fact, they broke it time and time again, and because of that, they were deserving of death. But God, in His grace, graciously gave Israel a sacrificial system to teach them that the penalty of sin is death. To teach them that 
There was a need for a sinless substitute to die in their place. And so they took innocent animals. They, they took blemish, uh, excuse me, spotless animals, animals that didn't have any blemishes, perfect animals, so-called, and offered them in the place of the people so that they did not have to die for their sin. <clears throat> and through that sacrificial system, he was showing there's a need for a greater sacrifice that is yet to come. These sacrifices of bulls and calves uh, and goats and sheep, they're not sufficient to take away sin. It's a ceremonial uh, offering that covers sin temporarily. In fact, how do we know? Those sins had to be, uh, the sacrifice for sin had to be repeated year after year after year. There wasn't just one sacrifice that settled sin once and for all for the people. And so there was a, a type and a shadow, Hebrews says, about that whole sacrificial system that pointed forward to a greater sacrifice yet to come. And some looked in faith to that greater sacrifice to come. Messiah. They didn't know his name yet, but they, they put their trust in that one to come and not in themselves. But the rest, they trusted in themselves. They trusted in their privilege of having the law as being the people of God because they possessed the law. Because they had the sign of circumcision. Because they had Abraham as their father. And they said, we are the people of God. And they boasted in their privilege. When Jesus came, what we see is that he knew the hearts of all men. That he knew those who were, especially the religious leaders in Israel who were teaching the people, and Jesus exposed them to be false shepherds because they themselves were the self-righteous. They were trying to keep the law in their own strength, trying to keep to the letter of the law while the whole time missing the spirit of the law. Matthew chapter 5, we read about Jesus' teaching with regard to murder. And he exposes it's not just the act of killing somebody that makes you a murderer, it's when you hate in your heart toward your brother that in the eyes of God, you have murdered him. And the same thing goes with adultery. It's not the physical act with the other person. It is that you lust in your heart for that other person. And so you are an adulterer in your heart to the Lord. And so he exposed their wickedness. He exposed that they had missed the whole spirit of what the law was intending to convey all the while. And he indicted the leaders for elevating their traditions, their explanation from their rabbis of what the Scriptures meant, they thought, to the same level of Scripture, and holding the traditions of men as the commands of God. And he indicted them, and he said, you are those who honor the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In Romans chapter 9, Paul gives a really good summary statement of the righteousness that these Jews were seeking by the law and how they completely missed the point. He says in Romans 9, um, 30, excuse me, 31, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And then he goes on to uh, say that the stumbling stone is not a stone, but a person. It's a him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they rejected. And so the Gentiles, they got it because they pursued it by faith. 
Righteousness was theirs because they trusted in Christ, the stumbling stone. But the Jews, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They were seeking their own righteousness by the works of the law. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that's the key, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then this wonderful summary statement, for Christ is the end. He's the telos, the purpose, the end, the finality of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. To everyone who believes. So, that's the whole point of Romans. Justification by grace through faith in Christ alone because he satisfies the righteous requirement of the law. He alone satisfies it. And so if you trust in him, you are counted with his righteousness. You're imputed the righteousness of Christ. God sees you with the very righteousness of Jesus. So now getting back to our thought in our text in Romans 6.14, when Paul says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. He's saying you are no longer seeking your justification or your righteousness. How? Through the deeds of the law, like the Jews were. You are not in that position anymore of trying to stand on your own two feet to be judged by the Lord based on your performance. Why? Because you've now been justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've seen that the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Christ. And you believe. And you believe. So, was the law ever a means of achieving righteousness? Was it ever a tool that God gave to to try to achieve justification? Right standing with Him? No. Romans 3.20 was really clear about that. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. No flesh. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law actually does the opposite. Rather than delivering us from sin, it only amplifies it. It only stirs it up in us so that we want to sin more. So Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own. And um, Hendrickson, the, the um, commentator, says this. I thought it was really insightful. He says, law is able to do many things. It commands, it demands, rebukes, condemns, restrains, even points away to, from itself to another, capital A, another. There is, however, one thing law can never do. It cannot save. It cannot save. By law works, no flesh will be justified. So the law, you can think about it this way, sets the standard, the bar of what is acceptable, which is what? Absolute perfection. That's God's standard of righteousness. It's a reflection of himself, absolute perfection. The standard is perfection, but the law provides no enablement to fulfill its requirements. No enablement. 
Matthew Henry said it this way, the covenant of works requires brick and gives no straw. I thought that was really well put. That's a reference to Israel when they were in Egypt under the domination of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, as a punishment to increase their burden, said, you will make the same quota of bricks, but take away the straw from them. How do you make bricks with no straw? You can't. They fall apart. So it is with the law. Obey perfectly and you'll live. Who can do that? It's a fool's errand. The purpose of the law is to, as we say, amplify our sin. It's to make it clear to us that we are under the dominion of sin already. And not only that, but to incite us to sin further. To say, don't touch that. And you say, well, I want to touch that. I think all of us can relate to that, especially with kids, right? Um, and with ourselves. The law never delivers from sin. It makes sin to abound, to stir it up, and to make sin appear exceedingly sinful. So now that we understand something of what it means to be under law, it means to be guilty before God, to be trapped by the law, to be under the old covenant, a covenant of works to attain righteousness, which frankly is an impossible position. Now we can understand what Paul means when he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Everyone who is under law is dominated by their sin. Why? Because sin only amplifies their sin. It doesn't deliver from sin. It just makes it worse. That's the connection. We have no ability to keep the law because of the weakness of our flesh. There's no power to obey because, why? We love our sin in our natural condition. We have no incentive to change. Our hearts are towards sin. We love the darkness. Listen to how Paul describes the law in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He calls it a ministry of death. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 3, 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, his face, his appearance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So, it's very interesting. Paul is here talking about the new covenant. He uses a term, ministry of the Spirit, to describe this new covenant. And in contrast, he's talking about the Old Covenant, which he calls the ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. Ministry, that's the word for deacon in the Greek, diakonia. It's a word that, uh, if you know what deacon means, it means table waiter. So what he's saying is that for the sinner, the law of God is like a waiter who serves up to us a platter of death. Death. Yet, you might say, well, I thought we were told in Romans that, coming up in Romans 7, that the law is good. It's described as holy, just, and good. And, and here in 2 Corinthians 3 7, it's described as glorious. Well, the law is glorious because it's a reflection of the glory of God, it reflects the perfect righteousness of God. His, what is his glory? His glory is his attributes. 
all his attributes. And so the law reflects the gloriousness of God. It's good. It's right. There's nothing wrong with the law. So why would Paul call the law a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation? Because it promises blessing and life in exchange for complete obedience, but cursing and death for breaking even one part of it. Galatians 3.10, Paul says this, quoting Deuteronomy 27, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is everyone who breaks just one part of the law. The letter kills, Paul says, for everyone who doesn't keep the whole law. James also has a similar statement on this in chapter 2, verse 10 of his book. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. The law is like a chain. It has integrity. If you break the chain in one part, you've broken the whole law of God in the eyes of God. And you are guilty. You are cursed, condemned. So the law is a curse to everyone who can't keep it perfectly, and that's all of us. while it's also glorious because it reflects the holiness and the righteousness of God. Paul also calls this law a law of sin and death in Romans chapter 8. So, sin shall not have dominion over you, but he says you're not in that position anymore. You're not under law. You're not condemned. You're not under sin and death. Where are you? You're under grace. Under grace. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know grace is God's undeserved favor, something we don't earn, something He just grants because He wants to, because He is good and kind. And there's so much that could be said on this subject. What does it mean to be really under law and grace? I'm, I'm hoping just to give you a taste of it this morning. To be under grace, it, you could think about it this way. It takes that whole picture of despair and hopelessness that we just painted about being guilty before God, trapped and enclosed by the law, under the covenant of works where I have to stand on my own two feet, on my own performance and be judged by God's holy standard of perfection, which I could never attain. And it turns that sad picture into a picture of great hope, of light and life. And so I'd like to give you just two points to consider this morning on this idea of what it means to be under grace. First of all, it means to be in Christ. To be under grace means to be in Christ. Look at Romans 8, verse uh, 1. Romans 8, verse 1. <clears throat> there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So to be under grace, brothers and sisters, means we are in Christ. And in Christ there is freedom from condemnation. We're no longer condemned. All our sins have been forgiven. Why? We've been transferred from being in Adam, as we've been learning, to being in Christ. 
And in Christ, who is really the essence of grace, He is grace personified. God sent His Son in our likeness, the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin Himself, in order that He might stand in our place and be condemned for us. That He would, as the text says, condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, as our substitute, as that perfect spotless sacrificial animal that was to come. The spotless Lamb of God. He destroyed sin's penalty for us. Our condemnation became His condemnation. Galatians chapter 3 talks about this when Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He was cursed and condemned that we might be freed from condemnation. Praise the Lord. In Christ is freedom from condemnation. It is what it means to be under grace. It also means that Christ forgives our sins. We read this morning in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What a statement. Lord, if you should count sin in my life, could I stand before you? Of course not. I'm guilty even as I'm born or before I'm even born in this world because I've inherited Adam's guilt. And then as soon as I have opportunity, I'm just sinning constantly in my life. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand before you? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. He sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin, to be condemned for us, to become that curse for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, the reign of sin and death is now replaced by the reign of grace and life. That's also what it means to be under grace. We're now under the reign of grace. Grace superabounds toward us. In Christ, the, the Scripture says we're now dead to the law. That's very interesting. We're going to get to this in chapter 7. He says, through the body of Christ, you become dead to the law. Well, does that mean that the law doesn't have a place for the Christian anymore? Does that mean that we set the law aside which is really getting back to the antinomian question, their question. If there's no law anymore, then can't we just sin with impunity because grace abounds? What's our relationship to the law now that we're believers in Christ? Does anything change? Well, yes, in Christ, we have a new relationship to the law. The law hasn't changed, but our relationship to the law has changed. What do I mean? Because God has satisfied the demands of His law for us in His Son, Jesus. Rather than condemning us as the law did before, the law of God now becomes our delight. Our delight. And we, for the first time, are able to fulfill it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, look at verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That's when we were in Adam. That's when we were in the covenant of works. But according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us. How? Because we're now walking according to the Spirit of God. We've been born again. We have a new relationship to the law. This is how the the psalmist can say in Psalm 119 in many places that he loves God's law. 119.72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. 
Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 167. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. In Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. How is it that the law can change for us from being that which condemns us to death and hangs over us as a a looming curse and encloses us to something that we say is our delight, our love, is sweeter to the taste than honey from the honeycomb? It is because we are not under law but under grace. In Christ, we have a new relationship to the law. So to be in, uh, under grace means that we are in Christ. And secondly, it means this, that we are now in the new covenant or under the new covenant. We're no longer in the old covenant. Listen to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, in fact, turn there with me, is um, a wonderful statement of the new covenant in the Old Testament. And between Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, we get a very full picture of what it means to be in the new covenant and what the blessings of the new covenant are. I just want to read a few verses together with you, starting in verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now notice this. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Israel broke the covenant. They left the covenant. In terms of marriage, they were married to the Lord as their husband and they divorced him. They left him. They committed spiritual adultery. That's what's possible under the covenant of works. The covenant of works is a bilateral agreement. God and man, do and live, disobey and die. But with the new covenant, notice what he says. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And he goes on to explain this is an unbreakable covenant. This is a covenant that cannot be broken. Why? Because this is a unilateral covenant. A covenant that God makes with himself for his people. It's not conditioned on our obedience. In fact, It's conditioned on the obedience of God to God, which we see in Jesus Christ obeying his Father. This is an everlasting covenant. You might remember in Genesis 15 that with Abraham, God put him to sleep at one point and he performed a ceremony that seems strange, but actually was common in the Near East, um, near ancient East, where God had Abraham kill and divide animals and put the pieces of the animals on either side of each other so that there was a pathway in between. And then the text says that God himself passed through between those animals. Abraham's asleep. God does this on his own. 
And he passes through as a, tor a torch and a burning lamp. As if to say, if I break the terms of this covenant with you, Abraham, may what happened to these animals in their violent death happen to me. That's the idea. God is ratifying the covenant with blood, and he's saying, I promise to do this by myself, with myself. That's what he does in the new covenant. The covenant, which is really a, a part of the whole covenant of grace. All the covenants that we read about after the, the covenant with Adam in the garden. The covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, with David. All these covenants are part of the covenant of grace where God has promised to his people to keep the terms of the covenant because he has promised by himself to do this. He has made an oath and a promise. And Hebrews says there's two things by which God cannot lie. He's made an oath and he's made a promise. He can't make an oath or swear by anything higher than himself, and so he swears by himself. Why? So that we would have a strong consolation. We'd have a, 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 um, an anchor for our souls to know that this, in fact, is true. Jeremiah 32, 40, just listen to this as he's expounding on this covenant that is not breakable. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. In other words, he won't leave us and we won't leave him either. Why? Why is it possible that we won't leave him? Because he says, I will put my fear in their hearts. In other words, it's as if the Lord is saying, sin shall not have dominion over you. You will not depart from me to pursue a life of sin any longer. Why? Because I myself, God speaking, shall have dominion over you. Sin won't reign over you. I'm going to reign over you. I'm going to put my fear in your heart so that you won't depart from me. That's the new covenant promise. You are not under law, but under grace. Now notice the next part in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. He says, after he says, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will put my law in their minds. Where was the old covenant written? It was written on tablets of stone. Where's the new covenant written? On tablets of heart, the heart. See, this is a picture of the new birth. God in Deuteronomy had said, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Stop being stiff-necked. In other words, be believing, not unbelieving. Who can do that? Who can circumcise their heart? That should have been the answer of Israel as, as they heard that, that glorious text. I, I, we can't do this, Lord, unless you do it for us. And then he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he will do it for them. And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God is going to circumcise the heart. Well, how does he do that? Ezekiel 36 gives us that insight. He says, God is going to take out the stony heart that you had. He's going to give you a heart of flesh instead. And that is the heart upon which he will write his word. 
He'll write his word. So rather than the law being something external that traps us and surrounds us and demands that we conform to its perfect standard, which we could never do, in the new covenant, God makes his law internal. His law now becomes a part of our very hearts, which is just another way of saying that which is nearest and dearest to us, that which governs all of who we are, that we can never forget it because it's in our heart. This is the governing principle of the new covenant. And really, brothers and sisters, this is the answer to the whole question about the antinomian who says you can't set law aside because people will just be lawless. They have to be governed and controlled by something. Right? Don't we hear that kind of talk even today in politics and other, other spheres? There has to be law to govern people and to control them so that they do right. What's God's answer to that? It's this. I'm going to change their heart and put my very law in their heart so that they are changed from within. They will change because I am changing them. I'm giving them a new nature. I'm not asking them to conform to a standard that they can't conform to with a heart of stone. I'm changing their nature so that they want to obey me now. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, this relationship is no longer conditioned upon our obedience like we saw in Exodus 19. I will be your God and you shall be my people, a special people, a treasure to me above all the people of the earth if you obey my voice and all my commands. No, here it is 1 Peter 2.9 in the New Covenant, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You. Who's the you? You who believe in Christ, that precious cornerstone, that chief cornerstone. To you who believe in him, you are a chosen generation. Why? Because it's Christ's obedience that counts for your obedience. God accepts you in Christ, not for yourself on your own. So we have a new intimate relationship with God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's no question there. It's not a condition. It's you will be my people. Because unlike the, the old covenant where bricks are required but no straw is given, here, to follow the analogy, God says, Make bricks and I will require, I will supply all of your need. I will supply you a new heart. I will supply you my very spirit as the power to keep my law. I will give you the desire because I'm going to put my law in your very heart, which is nearest and dearest to you. Everything you need for a life of obedience, I will supply you. Our position is no longer dependent on our performance, but on his performance in Christ for us. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, Jeremiah goes on to say. They will all know me, from the least to the greatest. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What does that mean? Well, in Israel, you had a special group of people who had knowledge of the Lord. It was primarily the prophets, the priests, and the kings who had the knowledge of the Lord. It was a small group relative to the whole nation of Israel. And knowledge was disseminated from those people down to the others. But with the new covenant, everyone who is born of God, whether you're young or you're old, whether you're a Jew or someone from any other nation of the world, whether you're male or female, 
slave or free in the context of the Scripture here. Everyone who has the Spirit of God knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. And, and here's the wonderful truth. In Christ, all of us are prophets, priests, and kings. In Christ. We all have this wonderful ability to proclaim the Word of God. That's what a prophet did. We have this ability to pray to the Lord, have access to Him. As was said earlier, the veil has been torn. We have access into the very throne room of grace now through Christ. We can pray and intercede on the behalf of other, other, other people. We are priests. And really in this context of Romans 6, we are kings because sin no longer reigns over us. It is grace who reigns over us, and we have been given the ability to say no to sin in our lives. We are kings in that sense. We are reigning with Christ in that sense, and we will reign fully with Him one day. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is so good. They will all know me from the least of the greatest to the, to the greatest. And then this statement, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Why is it that all will know him in this new covenant? Because all will have an intimate knowledge that their particular sins have been forgiven in Christ. All our sins have been forgiven. A full pardon. This is Micah 7. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. When? When he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our sins on himself. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There it is. That's our justification. We have been cleansed. All of our sin God has put into the sea of his forgetfulness. He's never going to bring it up again to charge us with our sin. It's been dealt with fully in Christ. And as we're studying now, there is this life of sanctification where he is separating us more and more from our sin to be like his son. And as we are being separated from our sin, He is subduing our iniquities. And one day, He's going to glorify even our bodies so that sin will be completely eradicated. The presence of sin will be gone and we will be made completely whole. So all of this is what it means to be under grace. It means to be in a new covenant. I will cause you to walk in my statutes you will keep my judgments and do them. The Lord will be our God. He is our God and we are his people because he has done all for us. I mean, brothers and sisters, is this not a great encouragement to live a holy life? This is the fuel that feeds the life of holiness and to kill our own sin. What is it? That God has done great things for us. He has done great things for us. Peter says it this way, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue, which is Jesus himself. He's called us to Christ and to live the life of Christ. And in Christ, we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God. Everything. And brothers and sisters, we have to know these things. We have to meditate on these things because as we do, there is a purifying effect that the word of God has as it washes over our consciences to know that these things are true and that we are truly freed from the power of sin. That's our fuel to live the life of holiness. And you notice he doesn't say something like this. You might hear in, as a common strategy, just let go and let God, right? 
God is just going to do this for you, so you don't need to do anything. Just kind of sit back and relax. The Scripture doesn't teach that at all. It teaches the opposite. In fact, it says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation, knowing this, that it is God who works in you both to do and to will for his good pleasure. So there's the dynamic. Work it out, knowing that the power source is the Lord himself in you, desiring, causing you to desire for his good pleasure, to do what is right, to live a life of righteousness and to hate our own sin. Works play a vital role. Works play a vital role. And this gets confused a lot. In the Old Covenant, works were required for our justification. In the New Covenant, works are an evidence that we are under grace. They show that we are under grace. We must do good works, but we're not doing them to earn some goodness or some favor with God. We do them as an act of thanksgiving and desire to show our gratitude to God for what He's already done for us in Christ. Remember, Romans 6, 12, and 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There's something to do. Work that out. Don't let sin reign that you obey its lusts. Here's another thing. Don't present your members as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Psalm 130 again, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel, notice this, from all his iniquities. From all his iniquities. How has that happened? Christ has already fulfilled this promise in our justification by putting our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west or God casting those sins into the sea as we read in Micah. He is doing this in our sanctification by separating us further from our sins to make us more like himself. He's redeeming us from our iniquities and he will do this completely in our glorification where we are redeemed in body as well as spirit. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And you can see how this really sets us up for the next question that Paul asks that we're going to address next time, Lord willing. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Are you kidding? The whole point of grace is to separate us from our sin. Why would we ever think it's okay to continue in sin under the guise of grace? No, can't be. Certainly not, he says. We're going to get to that next time. Brothers and sisters, sin shall not have dominion over you or me. That's not a command. That's a statement of fact of what God has done for you in Christ. For you are not under law but under grace. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, there's so much to think about and um, Lord, consider with regard to your word. Your word is so full and replete with your glory. Lord, it's hard to take it all in. Thank you for teaching us. Um, 
precept by precept, line upon line, helping us, Lord, to understand what it is that you've done for us, considering the work of the Lord, considering who you are and how you've, re you've revealed yourself in your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for these wonderful, wonderful promises that you have made to yourself and that you have um, kept and are working out in all of your people to the praise of the glory of your grace, that you would set on display your great name for all to see, that you are redeeming a people for yourself, zealous of good works, that we would desire to do what is right. God, that is a blessing that you have turned us away from our sins. You have sent Jesus in order that he may save us from our sins. Lord, may we remember this. We are called to holiness because you are holy. Father, may our lives be a direct reflection of your grace, of living under your grace. I pray that you would make it so with each of us here this morning. Help us, Lord, more and more to walk in this newness of life. Help us, Lord, to meditate on these wonderful truths, to let them pour over our souls and over our conscience that we might be cleansed thereby, that we might know that we are yours and you are ours forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.